to Pop the Question, a podcast that exists at the intersection of pop culture and academia. We sit down and talk about our favorite stuff through the lenses of what we do and who we are. From Pannonia Honors College at Drexel University, Dr. Melinda Lewis here. I'm your host. Hey, everybody. I'm here with Kat Heller, an animation and visual effects major here at Drexel University and also a scholar and maker of fandom. And we are going to talk about fandom and some of the work that they're doing in their own fan communities, some of the history and some of the ways that we see fandom play out in popular culture. Hey, Kat. Hi, Melinda. Happy to finally be here. Hi, what's going on? Uh, Lots of things. I have now three zines to talk about today. So that's very exciting. Yeah, let's get into it. I first met you doing the STAR Scholar Program. So from your perspective, what is the STAR Scholars Program? It is a way for first-year Drexel students to spend their summer researching any topic of their choice, working with a mentor on a project that you outline, and you're essentially getting to geek out for the entire summer over whatever you want in layman's terms. At least that's what I did. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, and you're an animation visual effects major. So what was your research for that program? Well, whenever I was asked, I would say that I was researching fan and participatory culture, specifically the etymology and the history, which essentially just means that I was researching fandom and its participants and its history. So where did specific terms come from? Where did practices come from? Where did stereotypes come from? That's something I really dove into. I asked the question, all right, I am a fan. I've been a fan my entire life. Where did all of these things that I have been doing since I was a child with access to the internet, where did all of these things start? So fan fiction, fan art, conventions, terms like fangirl, fandom, where did these things come from and how have they evolved? And I was very surprised to find roots in like the 1920s and practices going back to, you know, Broadway and things like that. You know, I'm interested to know, like, what were the roots of that particular fandom? Like, what did you find in that research that kind of made sense to you in terms of, like, the root? Or what maybe struck you as interesting? Well, first thing that comes to mind is I remember the rabbit hole I went down when it came to the matinee girls of Broadway. They really spearheaded female fandom specifically. They were these young factory worker girls that would go, like, hand in hand to these matinee Broadway showings, they would swap postcards, they would engage with the stars, they would send letters to each other and to the theaters. And one thing that I really loved researching was the fact that they would recreate costumes from these shows, and they would just wear them out and about. And obviously, like, that's what we would now refer to as cosplay. And they were these young, poor immigrant women that were spearheading. They they didn't know how big this would grow. Like, nowadays, there's whole industries revolving around fandom get here with these women just in their apartments drinking tea and making dresses so honestly just kind of what I trace back is that it's always been about young people finding a community or even older people but it started with just that young fire that's just kind of lit under so it's like you love something and you love it so much that's what I trace a lot of it back to and then further going down the timeline in the 60s Star Trek that's when a lot of the stereotypes really started to come yeah totally Space, a final frontier. (laughs) 
to boldly go where no man has gone before. There were plenty of panels and articles written about matinee girls as hysterical female fans, but you know, we see the formation of the modern stereotype when it came to the Trekkies. people getting married at these like very elaborate themed weddings and like very feral fan conventions and there was uh, I forget the name of the magazine that specifically wrote this article but it was all about one specific fan convention and it really just shed a really negative fanatic light and when I say fanatic I'm really referring to like original Latin definition where it's fervent excessive obsession with something not just I really like this thing and I'm engaging with it with other people no it was essentially like if you like this thing you are crazy and you are engaging with it to the nth degree and fandom was essentially packaged in this article as something that was not really palatable it's like an otherness it's like a an oddity yes and its own kind of like a sideshow narrative of like look at these odd figures who really like this thing too much exactly. there's like a limit where like you can be a fan of something but this is an extreme phantom that goes beyond and makes us very nervous yeah. and scared and i don't know if you've thought about this but do you have like a line where people seem to become too uncomfortable with like fandom frankly as long as no one is getting hurt or is negatively impacted I, it just bugs me that people give people a hard time about engaging with this thing that they love. As long as no one is being disturbed or hurt. And when I say disturbed, I don't just mean like, oh, I don't want to see this person running around with like a giant fake foam sword in a park. Right. I'm talking an actual negative impact. Like, just let people do what they want to do. You know, you watch football on Sundays. I don't like football. I like, you know wearing a sweater that looks like that of a character. Just let me live. Let people do what they want to do. <laughs> I don't mind that you seem to think you are the football player when you put on that jersey. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Is that cosplay? Hmm. Let's unpack that. I think that people feel pretty okay with music fandom and sports fandom seems to exist in this threshold where like people are comfortable despite the fact that like, Sports fandom is pretty intense, and we can talk about like the entire culture of like sports fandom. Ladies and gentlemen, the most beloved mascot in sports, your Philly Fanatic! And that honestly like reminds me, like the first journalistic use of the word fan was actually in reference to baseball. So now that we're throwing around the fact like, oh yeah, he's wearing a jersey cosplay. Now I'm like, hmm, these people really don't have any ground to stand on right now. Like you are a fan through and through as well. You are putting on that jersey and you are screaming right, right along. So now I'm, now I'm really thinking about that. Is it cosplay? <laughs> you know what this really got me also thinking about of like, you know, so much of sports fandom is also centered around what I would do if I were coach if I were manager yeah. which to me could that be a form of fan fiction that you're just not writing down <laughs> except your twitter maybe of like if I were this guy I would da, 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 I would move this person here and I would put that there and it's like yeah you're essentially writing your own star trek fiction but with like real life players which is that is that a little bit more cool or is there a little bit more to un unpack to that but where are those lines? Yeah. I think when people start romanticizing real people, like for example, like years mm. ago, like when people obsessively write like 
Dan and Phil fan fiction or like YouTubers um, Markiplier and like Jacksepticeye, people ship that to like the nth degree. And for me, you know, shipping, which is wanting two people to be in a relationship, that's where I draw the line because it's real people. And the people mm. that are really into sports, the way you just worded, it's like, they're just saying like, oh yeah, I would put this person here, this person here, this person here. And I'm just drawing like a weird flowy parallel there. So I guess that's kind of where I draw the line for when it comes to fandom. It's like, don't rope real people into it. Don't make them this parasocial person on a pedestal that you're throwing into all of these situations. Like, what if they found that piece of art or something that you created or that piece of fanfic that you wrote? Like, how would that you know, make them feel. So I want to really talk about like how you exercise your phantom or exercise your right to fan. (laughs) Exercise my right to fan. (laughs) What's that song? It's like the right to party or something like that. Yeah. You've You've got to fight for your right to fan. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, exactly. You are a fan, but you are also a fan like maker. You like create stuff. That's the thing I'm interested in, the making of stuff. So I guess it kind of just evolved from me being solely a consumer of fan content or of the source material to giving back to the community, just kind of growing into the avenues and the means to do that. So the first instance of me really engaging with fandom that I can think of was for a light and FX show in my hometown called Ghoul Masters Ghosts. And it was put on at Six Flags Great Adventure. I was around eight years old at the time. And this guy, he took inspiration from like Marilyn Manson, Rob Zombie, and like drag. It was this whole like gothic extravaganza with lasers and EDM and whatnot. And wow. my little brain took it and ran. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I give to you Ghoulmaster and his ghosts! And, you know, he was the Ghoulmaster. He had the mansion on the hill and whatnot. It was always strange. I would not be the person I am without this stage show. And I loved it. And the first piece of fan art to my memory that I can draw was that of Master and the ghosts all dancing around. I took like white chalk and I tried to like get the smoke right and whatnot. But I ended up bringing that to school one day and I found two other kids that were really into the show as well. And you know, that's the base of fandom. It's loving something and finding a community based around it, whether it's one friend, whether it's two, whether, you know, nowadays it's online, whether it's at your school, like for heaven's sake, I'm in Drexel Dragon Jedi, which is literally a lightsaber choreography group. That's a bunch of nerds (laughs) engaging with fandom and it's recognized by the school, which is great. It's your mom. I have a question about that podcast you do. Are you on the Instagram or the Twitter or the Facebook? You know, like if I have an idea for a podcast, how do I get in touch with you? Love you. Bye. Sup, mom? Uh, yeah. So you can find us on all those things, actually. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Just go to Pop Quest Pod on any one of those and follow.
If you want to send us ideas, you can either go over to our website and leave us a message at PopQ Podcast, or you can get us directly at PopQ at Drexel.edu. You can actually find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. Um, I can help set it up when I get home, but then you have to promise me to rate and review. All right. Love you. Bye. In terms of where you're at now with fandom, what are you doing? Great question. I'm figuring that out myself. <laughs> um, I'm working on my third fanzine right now, or typically just called a zine. And essentially, it is just a collection of fan work centered around a specific topic. That can be a specific movie, a franchise, sometimes even a specific chapter of something or an episode, something like that. The second zine that I ever worked on, it was called Our Favorite Scene Zine, and it focused on people's different visual retellings of one very specific scene from the book Red, White, and Royal Blue. Or the one that I'm working on now, Spring Tides, which is themed around the HBO Max show, Our Flag Means Death. Oh, wait, have you seen it? Have you seen it? Of course, it? of course I have. Yes. Dude, <laughs> I'm broken, I'm broken for this show. Yeah. <laughs> and the amount of fandom, yes! the amount of fan art, the fan connection, like just the amount of discourse around the fandom is so massive. Yeah. It's kind of cool to see like how people have responded to this particular show and so much of the discourse has been so much that used to be coded and then represented in fan fiction actually made it onto the show. Like it actually feels yeah. like fan fiction as opposed to the base text, which I think is why like everybody's like stomachs are gurgling with excitement. Cause it's like, oh my gosh, you put it. I think somebody was like, I'm sorry, I don't have to write it. It's already in there that they're kissing. We've been burned so many times and you're giving us overt healthy queerness and, you know, positive minority representation, we are sitting here like, we don't need to do it ourselves <laughs> for once? That's awesome! Bonifacia! I go by Jim these days. Well, come in, Jim. We'll have cake. Coming, Mama! I could talk about this show and its importance to fandom and just what it's doing online for all kinds of discussions. I could go on about that for a hot minute and I have with my friends. <laughs> there we go. There's some real life fandom. We're, we're talking about the meta of this show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But whether it be the historical accuracy of Steen's costumes versus, you know, Taika Waititi being like, I'm going to be Blackbeard in a purple t-shirt and leather pants. Projects like these are just really something special. And I just, oh goodness. Yeah. You know, here's a show that has put the subtext in the text. Yes that so often was drawn out by people watching yeah. and saying like, nah, this is what I'm going to do instead. And another really nice thing that was awesome to see in the show was the fact that these queer characters, their queerness was not the center of a crisis, which was awesome to see mm. in something that fan works have been remedying within source materials for years. So, you know, you have, say, you know, Olu and Jim from Our Black Means Death, for example, and Jim is non-binary. And, you know, I dare say in most other pieces of media, Olu would be having a full crisis like, oh my God, like, what does this mean for me liking a non-binary person? No, instead it's, oh, I like my friend. 
However, the big crisis here is they've been raised to be this mercenary killing machine bent on revenge. <laughs> I was out there for weeks before anyone could find me. Dude, that's awful, man. Look, for what it's worth, you're surprisingly well-adjusted for an orphan raised by a nun to be a killing machine. If... She's my only family. Well, look, if you wanted, I could be family. You know, seeing queerness not portrayed as a crisis, that was so mm -hmm. refreshing to see in the show. And specifically, one thing that I'd kind of like to mention for the zine I'm working on now for Spring Tides, there is this little channel in there and it's called Share the Joy. And this really harkens back to the fact that fandom is a community. Oh. And it's just all of us talking about nice things in our life. It's a community that is built around this, you know, piece of media, but everyone is just online friends. Mm. And there's a reason it's been adapted to so many different platforms and mediums is because you know, something this positive is bound to grow. People are going to be drawn in. People are going to tell their friends. And that just wouldn't happen if it was the negative environment that some people stereotype it to be. I want to draw back on the Trekkies for a second because, you know, that gatekeepy stereotype, so many of the instances that really spearheaded that, they happen at Star Trek conventions. And there was that one SNL skit that just, yeah, that would just show like really <laughs> gatekeepy fans like, no, it came from this episode or, that type of thing, and you know, the for God's sake, it's just a TV show. You know, before I, I answer any more questions, there's something I wanted to say. I, I, having received all your letters over the years, and, and, and I've spoken to many of you, and some of you have traveled, you know, hundreds of miles uh, to be here, I'd just like to say, get a life, will you, people? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I mean for, for crying out loud, it's it's just a TV show. <laughs> I mean, look at you. Look at the way you're dressed. Uh, you, 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 you've turned an enjoyable little job that I did as a lark for a few uh, years into a colossal waste of time. I mean, I mean how old are you? People? That whole stereotype. What have you done with yourself? It, it's true for some people, but at least in my experience within like these smaller communities, it really doesn't exist. If you are creating something that you are passionate about, if you hold up whatever you're doing at the end, you say, this is cool. As long as it's not offensive or anything like that, share it because odds are there is going to be someone who is going to be just as excited about it. But when it comes to engaging in fandom online, just do it. If you have a fan fiction that you've written, just post it on AO3, put the right tags on it. There is an audience for it. If you create some kind of art based on a piece of media, whether it be directly depicting the characters or something that happened in the canon or an alternate universe or something super abstract, it's just like this captures the vibes of this episode. Someone is going to love it. You know, I understand why someone might be nervous because I very much was nervous the first time that I posted a piece of fan art, but there's really nothing to be afraid of. Just, you know, be smart online. Don't make anything offensive. Just keep it wholesome. That's what fandom really just needs to be. It needs to be an outlet. It's a positive community. But I said it before, I wouldn't be the person I am today without fandom. I wouldn't be in animation if it weren't for fandom. I loved How to Train Your Dragon. Nothing to be afraid of. And I said, I want to create that magic for other people. What is wrong with you? Mad Dragon! <laughs> he 
He's, he's not usually like this. Oh, no. So, that's the long and the short of that. It's the long. <laughs> well, Kat, I always appreciate you going into the long of it, and I could do this for another four hours, but alas. Alas. Thanks so much for hanging out and talking to us about fandom. You are a fan maker, and you're an expert on your own work. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. I, I hope that, you know, I'm able to maybe inspire someone to post their art or a fan fiction or something. What have you. I hope that some creative gets something out of this. Yeah. Take care. Thank you for having me, everyone. Pop the Question was researched and hosted by Dr. Melinda Lewis. Our theme music and episodes are produced by Brian Kantorik with additional audio production by Noah Levine. All of this was done under the directorship of Erica Levy-Zellinger, the deanship of Dr. Paula Moranz-Cohen, and the Pannoni Honors College at Drexel University. I know it's important. I do. I honestly do. But we talking about practice, man. What are we talking about?